I'm Daniel Rothberg, a reporter for the Nevada Independent. I'm joined by Mark Johnson, the president of UNR, and our producer, Joey Lovato, a former UNR student who's here and might chime in with a few questions. Before we start, I want to do a quick plug for the pod. If you've not done so, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Also be sure to tell your friends, neighbors, and countrymen that the Indie Matters podcast is chock full of interesting information on topics that matter to them and that they should be listening to. Well, thanks, Mark, for being on the podcast today. Certainly. Um, I'm going to start with a sort of open-ended question, which is you were appointed president in 2012. It's the end of 2018 now. And I'm curious, in that time, what has been, would you say, your biggest success or something you're really proud of? And also, what's been the biggest challenge that you've faced? I would say that the uh, biggest success started back when I was provost and uh, President Glick put me in charge of the budget during the recession time. Mm -hmm. We did not do across the board cutting so that we preserved the programs at their full strength during the recession so that we came out of the recession with tremendous momentum. Since that time, uh, another success is that we've been very, very attractive to students, particularly all over the state of Nevada, especially Las Vegas and Northern California. So our enrollment has uh, gone up uh, quite successfully in the last few years. And then that is the cause of the greatest challenge during, during these last few years is to uh, identify the resources necessary to build buildings, to hire faculty, to hire other support staff in order to absorb a rapid rise in enrollment and not only a rapid rise in enrollment, but to change the nature of education uh, for this generation. And this generation wants hands-on learning so that they not only sit in lectures and, and receive information, but they're actively involved in their learning. And uh, uh, with hands-on, they gain confidence that they really can do something with what they're learning in college. Well, I was going to get to it a little bit later, actually, in the podcast, but since you brought it up, I'll ask you right now a little bit more sort of about growth and how it's affected UNR, because in addition to, you know, the increase in enrollment, you mentioned the whole region's going through sort of this period of growth. And I think it's, um, I mean, it's a positive thing. Uh, I think, that, though, that it's been sort of a double-edged sword for a lot of people. Like you mentioned, <laughs> it is the success and the challenge for a lot of institutions, city services, things like that. You know, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what the university needs to do sort of to meet the growth that's already happening and then to prepare for what sort of the Trekking Meadows region is seeing in the future with sort of predicted, you know, pretty bullish forecasts for employment and, you know, growth in general. So the since the recession, the growth of this area for advanced manufacturing has been tremendous. It's completely revolutionized the nature of this community. So it, to be a responsive university where these industries are looking to the university for much of their workforce, their highly educated workforce, uh, we've had to respond in the nature of the programs that we offer. And we have. We uh, have good conversational relationships with the leadership of these industries and their HR departments. Uh, we have changed some of our curricula to create some specialized minors and specialized emphases 
in battery storage and uh, engineering, for example, when Tesla came on and Panasonic came to town in renewable energy, when we were doing dealing with solar and geothermal energy, and now with cybersecurity, uh, we've just met with blockchains to look at how we can modify the curriculum in the computer science to turn out graduates that are much more familiar with the kind of technology being applied with blockchains. So that's the change and the challenge that we've responded to in the educational environment. Uh, but because we've grown also, we've had to build buildings and we've invested about $470 million in buildings and renovations in the last 10 years. Only 16% of that has come from state funds. Mm -hmm. So it's been a challenge working with donors, with uh, the application of student fees, the realignment of our resources to liquidate some assets and move that uh, those funds over to construct buildings. So just responding to the quality of spaces, the quantity of spaces has, has been quite a challenge also. For the broader community, of course, uh, it's housing. Right. Uh, and housing costs affects everybody. Uh, our graduate students, for example, are complaining that uh, our our stipends that we pay for graduate students aren't keeping up with uh, the, the rise in housing prices, for example. So uh, that's a challenge for faculty and students. I've got a question really quick. I'm Joey Lovato. I'm the podcast producer here at the Nevada Independent. For those uh, for those listeners wondering who this third voice is, uh, but anyway. You're talking about growing a lot, and you have a lot of new buildings going up, but you're kind of running out of space on campus. Are you planning on expanding down into downtown, or where where are you finding new land to build on? Well, uh, we came up with our strategic plan, in two th our, our master plan, rather, in 2004. It was approved by the regents. We did this jointly with the city of Reno and the Regional Transportation Commission, and the whole idea of growth was to continue infill, and then grow south toward downtown and midtown by uh, building and planning for new academic buildings and parking structures in that space between the campus and I-80. So it's really just between I-80 and 9th Street and between Virginia Street and Evans. And that's why uh, uh, we're uh, buying the properties there and getting them cleared for building sites. I think there's specifically concern about some of the housing south of campus. And we should talk specifically about, I think, what Joey's referencing, which is the UNR Gateway District sure. and the 10 homes there. They were built in the late 19th century, right? Late 19th century, early 20th. And, you know, um, as Joey mentioned, this has been the subject of a lot of controversy for the university, I think, in the last year. I think at one point I, I was looking at an RGJ opinion piece that came out this week that I had quoted you, I think, in 2015 saying the university was making every effort it could to preserve the homes. But right now it's been it's been difficult to find someone, I think, to relocate the homes. Uh, what's your thinking on it right now? Well, the thinking is that we've been involved in this discussion for at least three years. Uh, we went to the Historic Resources uh, Commission in July of 2016 uh, having had some previous conversations with them, uh, the Historic Resources Commission said, well, we'd really like you just to leave the houses where they are. Number two, leave them where they are and repurpose them for other university activities. Number three, move them 
and the worst possible option was to demolish them. So at that time, uh, almost three years ago, we agreed, and I told the city council, we agreed that the worst option would be to demolish the homes. So we've spent the last two and a half years uh, looking for places to move those homes because our master plan calls for uh, clearing the area and having and developing footprints for large academic buildings. The next ones to come on will be a college business building, a life sciences laboratory building, and a parking garage, plus some additional ones in the future. We, since we we have worked with the state transportation department, identified a piece of land where we could move them. Uh, we worked with the city housing authority. Uh, they want new homes rather than old homes. We worked with the Washoe County, and they looked at some transitional housing for such programs as uh, what can, where can uh, foster youth go when they graduate from the foster youth program. And none of the public entities figured that they could really afford to move the homes and renovate them and bring them up to code. So we opened up last spring the offer to anybody in the public that could prove that they had the land and the money to move the homes, then they could have them. And uh, we had 12 houses under contract to move. Uh, two of them are going to individuals. One is being prepared for moving today. And Common Ground, in association with Burning Man, agreed to take 10, and we had them under contract. And they just recently uh, defaulted on the contract and were terminating the, that contract. So the reason it has become more controversial now is because there is this uh, worry that these houses will be demolished. So what we're continuing to do is to take the six homes that were identified with a professional documentarian as having some historic value or at least elements of the house have some historic value and we're going to focus on those six and try to find new locations for them. So we have two under contract. We're talking with a couple other people about taking additional homes and we will continue to try to make sure that those six homes that have historic value get relocated. But there is an end to this time. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the timeline like for the university? At what point can, can the university no longer sort of wait in this process? Well, we can't wait any longer to identify uh, spaces for these building footprints. Uh, you cannot actually get hire an architect to do a very specific building plan without knowing where it's going to be sited. We can't go to fund sources, donors, if we don't have a very secure site and a preliminary design of the building. And it, so it takes at least a year in terms of design and fundraising to actually start a construction project. So we have to be assured of a building footprint now that's not under a cloud of uncertainty because of a lot of public pressure so that we can start moving to fulfill the master plan that uh, our Board of Regents has approved. And when people look at that, you know, I think they might ask the question, why? Well, why does the university need to build there? Why can't they just go somewhere else? Why can't they build this project somewhere else? You know, what, what, how do you answer that? I think the best way would be to drive around the footprint, current <laughs> footprint of the campus 
to uh, show us where they have in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of our master plan has to do with this is a pedestrian campus. We don't want cars going all over the place. We don't want, want our students to have to drive to their class uh, several blocks away. So um, we have a bicycle and pedestrian uh, goal to our campus footprint. So we're going to build close to the campus. Secondly, we were asked by the city of Reno and RTC to energize the development of downtown Reno. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is to build, the, have the university build south, the, the city work with private entities to build north, and we want to have this nice connection all the way from the university all the way down to Midtown. Mm-hmm. That's streets, it's bike paths, and it's lighted uh, building areas so that people aren't afraid to uh, walk or skateboard or bicycle across that expanse. Mm -hmm. So we actually worked in concert with the city of Reno to identify the direction of growth for the university. And in April of 2016, the city council actually adopted our gateway master plan into the city's master plan. So we've been working together uh, as a much broader community in order to identify moving south to energize the development of downtown Reno. You mentioned investing, I think you said, $470 million in the last decade? That's correct. How much do you predict some of these new projects will cost in the next decade? The two projects we have in mind, um, a life sciences building and a col- college of business building, in very rough terms, are about $100 million each. And, and how much of that funding will come from the state, do you think? Like, what's sort of the breakdown going to be there? About 16% like it was? No. Okay. No. Our request to the state for state funds for buildings are very, very specific. So the 2017 legislature, with tremendous support of, uh, of Governor Sandoval, was to pay for about 45% of a new engineering building. And then this next session... The Board of Regents is placing their focus on state support for buildings in the southern part of the state. So we anticipate that like a $100 million business building will be uh, partly funded by donors, partly funded by student fees that are already being charged for capital improvement, and then uh, uh, realignment of uh, assets from some... uh, uh, sales of properties that uh, are, we aren't using that mm-hmm. intensely. So that segues into another topic that I wanted to ask a little bit about because the Nevada system of higher education, sort of considering it right now, and that comes down to, I think, sort of college affordability. Um, you mentioned student fees, but then also their regi- you know, registration fees, tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Nevada system of higher education, I believe, is considering two paths right now sort of to provide students with some stability on tuition hikes. I think one would it would basically freeze registration fees for four years, I think. Uh, and then the other one, I think, puts tuition on sort of a four-year cycle to provide a little bit more s- stability. What do you th- make of those proposals? Do you support them? Well, I, you know? I think it's good to provide families with security so that they can plan for what they estimate college is going to cost. So 
one part of college cost is the registration fees students pay to actually gain access to the classes. Mm -hmm. The one proposal that focuses only on uh, predictability is to make sure that the regents have approved a registration fee level for at least four years out so that a, an undergraduate student can plan uh, for fixed pricing over four years. That mm -hmm. it, now, what it's been in the last six years has been an increase of 4% per year for the last six years, which mm -hmm. means the last four plus the next two. Uh, so that's predictable. We know that it's going to go up 4% each year. The alternate proposal is that whenever a student arrives on campus, then they fix a fee, a registration fee, for each credit hour. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the difficulties with that is record keeping, of course, because different students arrive at different times. The, the social difficulty with that is that uh, many different students in the class will be paying many different prices for the exact same courses, depending if you came in as a freshman and you had a certain fee guaranteed for four years. Next year, you're sitting with sophomores that have a different fee that they're, <laughs> they're <laughs> guaranteed. So it's a little bit different, difficult to understand and it's difficult to implement. Mm -hmm. But I certainly think that it's a really good idea to give predictable pricing so that families can plan. I'd also say that uh, the registration fees for what it costs to go to college is not the biggest expense of going to college. The biggest expense is foregoing the income that you would get from a job, plus housing costs and meals and all of that, uh, well, you're, you're not in a full career If job. I remember from my... Well, the one economics class I took, I think that's opportunity cost. <laughs> yes, it's the opportunity cost. Very well done. <laughs> you get an A for that one. <laughs> so um, those we don't control, like housing costs and, and the, the jobs that you could have had that you did not, we were not able to take because you're spending most of your time in school. So those, about two-thirds of the cost of education is not controllable by the university, but we could control the predictability of registration fees. I mean, for UNR, how would you implement something like that with the budget if people are basically paying different fees, like you mentioned? It's more, mostly a, a, a record-keeping mm -hmm. issue, uh, putting a tag and a computer tag on, uh, on a record and saying, okay, this student entered at a certain time and they were guaranteed this registration fee throughout, and then they would just be charged the same registration fee for each of the classes they take for the next four years or so. So we could do it, but and it would not really require uh, more. I don't think it would be really more expensive to do it that way. Another topic I, I wanted to sort of talk about a little bit, since it's also been in the news the last couple of years, and uh, I recently did a little bit of reporting around it, but some of these First Amendment issues that have come up. So in, you know, in September this year, after the Kaepernick Nike ad came out, you sort of acknowledged this and said UNR has had its fair share of controversies around the First Amendment. Um, and then you went on to say, as an advocate for the right of free expression, I value the dialogue Colin Kaepernick brings to campus, to our country, and to the world. And it, on the other side of Kaepernick, UNR has also had to grapple with this issue in the wake of Charlottesville, um, with one of the main protest photos featuring a UNR student. So I just want to ask, sort of looking back at that, 
over the last two years or so. Do, do you feel like the university's response to these issues has been adequate? And if it hasn't, or if there, there are sort of gaps there, are there any lessons that you've learned? Yes, we've certainly learned a lot of lessons over the last year, starting with Charlottesville. And uh, when it was learned that one of our students, he became the poster child of the yeah. entire Charlottesville uh, demonstration out there. But uh, we, we've had several things. We've had an issue of a police stop. We've had uh, uh, some swastikas painted with anti-Semitic messages and things of that nature. So what I've certainly learned over the last year is that it's very important that you separate the First Amendment right from the content of the message. And when a person is in an emotional state of reaction, there is no ability to separate those two concepts. So first of all, the university has stood up for uh, the Charlottesville person and Colin Kaepernick for their right to free expression. And at no time did we say, and by the way, we support the message or we're against the message. So it's in, up to individuals to judge the message, but still protecting all of our right to, to free expression. And when you separate those very clearly, then it's easier to then get mad at the message and not the, say, uh, we gotta get rid of the right. Mm -hmm. the, the most disturbing response to free expression is, I believe in free speech, but not that speech. That blends the two, the message and the right to express yourself together. And if you, if you can't separate them, then we would fear losing the right to free expression. What we have done as a university is respond to the message. First we say, people have a right to free expression. Then sometime we respond to the message. When it's a white supremacist message, we can say very clearly that our university is open to everyone, and therefore we don't have a supreme group. So we can say that we don't support white supremacy because we have a very diverse set of students on our campus. So we can restate our values. Our values are listed in our strategic plan. The strategic plan has been approved by the Board of Regents. So we can continue to restate our principles of inclusion of everyone. But at the same time, people get angry on the message. We have to protect the right to free expression. That's a constitutional right. Is, is there ever a challenge for you there? You talk about these issues being really emotional. It's hard to separate. You know, I, I, I know that in journalism, it can be difficult to do sort of the same thing. Personally, do you ever find it difficult when you see sort of, especially when it involves hate speech, to separate those things? Certainly, I get emotional over hateful speech, bullying speech, things of that nature. And I do come out and speak uh, against the messages uh, if they are racist, if they're uh, bigoted, if they're anti-Semitic. Uh, we speak out against those messages. And by the same token, we can't say someone does not have the right to express them. Are you surprised, you know, the swastika thing, there have been, there have been incidences where swastikas have, have been posted on campus uh, last year and this year. You know, what's your reaction when you see that? Well, it's a reaction of disappointment because uh, 
anyone who would throw that up to get a rise out of someone or even to have an anti-Semitic message really misses the point of history where the swastika represented murder, represented bigotry, uh, anti-Semitic behavior, anti uh, the uh, the the work against the uh, mentally handicapped, for example. Uh, so those symbols of only about 70 years ago, the way they were used, I can't imagine anyone uh, using those symbols if they knew anything about history. You know, I'm curious just talking to students, and I know the administration works a lot with student government, and how big of a priority do you think these issues are around sort of the campus climate for students? They're a huge issue right now, and I'll say two things about that. Um, when we talk with students, the students are having forums, uh, and they're talking about sexual harassment, anti-Semitism, um, racism. So th these issues are on top of mind to many of our students on campus, at least those that gather together and are, are in our student government. But I was very impressed at the fall graduation ceremony when uh, Nevada Supreme Court Justice Jim Hardesty came to give the commencement address. And he said, I was the student body president here 48 years ago during the Vietnam era. And the issues of our day were racism, homophobia, genderism, sexual harassment. So they're the, basically the very same issues 48 years ago. Mm -hmm. But his message was that by having student government work with administration, there were no Kent State killings on our campus. There were no Berkeley, Berkeley tear gas demonstrations on our campus. But the student government and the students and the faculty and administration worked together to have conversations about all these issues. Mm -hmm. And it created a sense of understanding and peaceful conversation uh, about these issues. And that's exactly the way our students handle these issues today. Mm -hmm. and it's wonderful to see. But interestingly, we were doing the same thing 48 years ago. So another issue sort of having to do with the campus climate is sort of this issue around sexual harassment, uh, which kind of resurfaced recently with um, the Nevada Sagebrush's report on the Teak fraternity document that basically detailed some songs portraying pretty violent assaults and sexual imagery. And I would say that it's fair to say that they were fairly graphic in, in their detail. Um, the, the frat has been suspended pending an investigation. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where that investigation and that process is right now. The process is continuing. Uh, not only did the university put them under temporary suspension while we do the investigation, but the National Teak Organization put them under temporary suspension while they're investigating so uh, we take these things very seriously. They're very hurtful. They're just stupid. <laughs> so uh, our president used the excuse at one point, of, oh, that's just locker room talk. Mm. Well, locker room talk, if it generates any response from the members in the way they treat other people, then it's, it's actively harmful messaging. And um, so uh, we, we take this very seriously. 
if we ever have any second, we, we have a, a Title IX office, Equal Opportunity Office, that we encourage people to uh, report sexual harassment or whatever. We will investigate every case where we have some evidence, mm -hmm. and we resolve these cases. So sexual harassment, gender discrimination, uh, have no place on the campus because both men and women need equal opportunity to have a safe place to study and learn and build their careers. So in the last like four years, you've had to suspend several fraternities, not just not just Teak. You also had um, as SAE, uh, Lambda Chi, and uh, Sigma Nu. Is this something that you see like a problem with Greek life in, in, in general? Or I don't know uh, if it's only the Greeks. Um, basically, uh, when we have suspensions, it's largely around alcohol. And uh, we have a law in this state that you can't serve minors uh, liquor. And when we have uh, ritual events or when we discover that there are ritual events involving freshmen, most of whom are 18, and they're being delivered alcohol as part of the ritual, uh, that's worth suspension. And in the case of Sigma Nu, when we find um, that alcohol gets delivered the way it was, and we actually had a death of a freshman student as a result, they're gone for 15 years. Um, the, the, the Greek organizations don't like some of the new policies we've put in place about regarding the relationship agreement, the obligations of a fraternity and their behavior if they're going to be associated with the university. So several of the fraternities and sororities voluntarily left the university to be unrecognized because they would not sign the agreement that sets out basic behaviors of fraternal organizations. Can, can you go into detail about what you were asking them to sign? We, we've had a relationship agreement for years, but springing off the uh, one event of a student death in the fall of 2016, uh, we added two provisions to the previous agreement that all the fraternity organizations had signed. One is that they will have a live-in adult uh, after 2020, and the second is they will report without any names, just report the kinds of events that the judicial processes come up with within the fraternities, and the purpose of that is to understand the trends and the issues that are coming up in fraternity life. We're not going to uh, put any additional sanctions on. We're not asking for names. We just want to know what kind of cases are being handled locally in the fraternities so we can see if there are trends developing on alcohol issues or sex issues or whatever. I'm sure you talk to other university presidents here and there. Would you say that this is something that a lot of universities are having to grapple, uh, grapple with, or are some of these issues particular to UNR? There's nothing unusual at UNR. Uh, I go to presidential conferences twice a year, mm -hmm. and one of the hot topics for the last two years has been why have we been killing our freshmen at fraternity rituals? So it's big, not just serious here, it's serious across the country, and if people just don't want to live under any restrictions and their use of alcohol in uh, Greek houses, they're not gonna get by with that here because we know that it can have catastrophic 
results. Uh, it teaches people to break the law, and it can end in very catastrophic losses. With, with the death of the student, you, you suspended the frat for 15 years, you said? Yes. Now, some people would say, like, the death of a student, 15 years, do you think the culture of that organization is going to change at all? Or how, how do you see the suspension affecting their, their role in the, with the university? Well, it certainly affects the, their role for the next 15 years. Um, because but, but won't it just come back after that? I, I don't know that it will, because uh, the reason it was for 15 years is because there were alumni involved. And, and that's why it's for 15 years. I don't think our students are going to be around here for 15 years. Uh, so we were also making sure that there was a lot of time between the incident and uh, uh, the thought that uh, alumni could bring alcohol to such a party. You know, just getting back, I guess, to um, some questions about the, the main mission of UNR, which is to educate students or university. I mean, there are other... There are other submissions that a university has for we have, sure. We have many. Uh, and you could argue what an edu- what is an education, um, but uh, I won't go down that rabbit hole uh, today. Um, I'm curious, when it comes to academics, what maybe are sort of three main goals that you have right now for the next sort of couple of years or maybe the, the next decade? Well, I appreciate you having three because we have three uh, core missions. Mm-hmm. One is to... Uh, provide a great education, which we want to do experiential learning at the undergraduate, the graduate, and the medical school levels. Mm -hmm. That's very important to us. Uh, The second mission is research, and we are on a rapid pace toward going from a Carnegie classification of a second-level research university to a top-level research university, and we're really getting close. And the importance of research is that we come up with new ideas and pushes society along with, with new knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, but also, much of our research is commercialized right here so that we can turn intellectual properties into businesses. And then our third mission is to engage our communities. That's because we're a land-grant institution. Mm-hmm. So we've had cooperative extension here and in every county of the state for more than 100 years. Uh, So we take research-based information and deliver it out in the communities to answer local contemporary issues. But we also, in outreach, are now with our innovation center here downtown Reno. We're reaching out to the entrepreneurial community, and this this, uh, Innovation Center has only been open for three years, but it's been identified as one of the entrepreneurial hubs for the whole community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have startup businesses that come in here, get incubated. Most recently, we've just graduated three of the businesses uh, from here. They've uh, got some basic capital. They've grown. They've got commercial spaces outside of the building. That's what we call graduating from this incubator space. Mm-hmm. And we'll invite other companies to come start here. So those three missions, I think, are maturing uh, very well since the recession. So mm-hmm. we're we're doing very well. And athletics, I guess, is not a mission, but it's a uh, it's a it's, it's a great public service. I'm wondering if you could give listeners just a little sense of what it means to be a top tier research university. Like, how does that benefit 
you know, the, the activities that you're involved in as president, whether it be attracting faculty or funding or things like that, what, what sort of is the advantage there? Yeah, part of the advantage is uh, personnel in terms of students and faculty. Uh, faculty and students, especially graduate students who want to associate themselves with a very successful research career, uh, will be more attracted to a, a university that's been proven to be a real research university. You can't be one without really good research support services, good uh, quality laboratories and that sort of thing. So we want to be a place where our assistant professors will come here for their first career and spend 40 years here in their career. And, and those really super uh, faculty members with both strong teaching and research will also attract graduate students and undergraduate students. So that's very important. The outputs of research are extremely important as well uh, because, uh, as I said earlier, many times we create intellectual property that will turn into a business. Uh, we're uh, in medical research. We're solving diseases. We're doing... Uh, diagnostic tests, for example, for fungal meningitis in Africa, where you could not tell if you had this particular disease without a spinal tap, and now we have a test strip that will put saliva on and determine whether you have the disease. We're working on vaccinations for muscular dystrophy, for example, that's another one. Both of those uh, have uh, uh, captured intellectual property or are now uh, commercializing those uh, those vaccinations and those tests. So uh, a, a top research university uh, produces knowledge. It attracts really serious scientists. And the third thing I would say, uh, it builds the reputation of the university, the city, and the state. Nevada is one of only 10 states that does not have a top-rated research university. And we have the highest population of any of those states that don't have a top-rated research university. So we want to deliver that to Reno and Nevada. Would you say that's your, one of your main priorities as president? Or It's, it's one yeah. of the main priorities. and Our priorities sort of get mixed. Uh, one of our other priorities from a teaching standpoint is to get our student-to-faculty ratio down to 18 to 1 like these other fine mm -hmm. research universities. Uh, during the recession, our student-to-faculty ratio was 22 to 1. And most land-grant universities, we were the, had the highest student-to-faculty ratio of any land-grant university, along with LSU and, and uh, West Virginia. Just in the last few years, we've taken that 22 to 1 student-to-faculty ratio down to 19 to 1 wow. on our way to 18 so to 1. So you're almost there. So we're almost there, and we're almost to R1 research at the same time. And getting the student-to-faculty ratio balanced out to be more like other top research universities gives us the, the opportunity to have a closer student-faculty connection, and that's really how students learn. Mm -hmm. And we have the opportunity to balance the teaching and research loads of our faculty so that they can have a teaching and a research load very similar to those faculty 
that they want to be like in those other fine research universities. So you're increasing your faculty numbers. How are you making sure that you're paying them? Like, are they are you increasing any wages at all while increasing your faculty numbers? I've heard talk from some professors that maybe their wages should be increasing while they're not. Well, the state has been increasing with uh, cost of living raises. Uh, this year and last year was uh, 3%, so that is helpful. And uh, uh, we have proposals in through the regents to uh, pay additional attention to faculty salaries. So uh, by the same token, uh, we do what we can to prevent people from leaving. Say my salary is low comparative this job offer, compared to the job offer I have. So we, we try to... Uh, do what we can to retain our very best faculty by making whatever adjustments are needed. So I have one more question. What are your plans moving into the 2019 legislative session? Do oh, have, do you have like a list? We certainly have a list. Um, uh, first of all, are you checking it twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> first of all, it's very important that the, uh, uh, the governor and legislature stay with the funding formula that was established several biennia ago and that has the support for the, for the universities and colleges following where the students are finishing classes that's very important um, secondly in the last session there was legislative and gubernatorial support for a capacity enhancement program for all of the institutions and we uh, are hoping that we will get years two and three of that program, which will bring to the University of Nevada, Reno, about 35 new faculty positions and 50 graduate research assistants, all focused on advanced manufacturing research. And this advanced manufacturing research initiative fits hand in glove with the developments in Northern Nevada. And then uh, the fun part will be identifying summer school as having va the same value as fall and spring classes. And we have a proposal to start having the uh, state recognize the value of supporting universities and colleges and education by paying for summer classes as well as fall and spring. It'll do a couple of things. One, it will encourage colleges and universities to have more flexible scheduling so that people can get out in even three years for, for a, a bachelor's degree, and it will help us use our uh, laboratory facilities and classroom facilities more efficiently by spreading our courses out over the full year instead of just fall and spring. So last question to kind of close it out here. Um, I know your contract, I think, last year was extended to 2020. So I'm curious, how long are you going to stay at this and, um, you know, what your goals might be for the next at least two years? Right. I have no plans to retire at this time. Uh, I have until June 30th of 2020 on my current contract, and we'll see if anybody wants me to stay beyond that. But uh, uh, I, I certainly have enjoyed this job. We've made so much progress at this university. Uh, and... Uh, uh, leadership stability is very important to any organization, and uh, I want to assure that we have stable leadership here. Uh, one of uh, UNLV's issues has been that they've had four university presidents in the time that I've been here, and it's very difficult to uh, 
develop a long-term plan and long-term set of goals and fulfill those goals uh, with unstable leadership or rapid turnover leadership. So I'm really hopeful that UNLV will find uh, stability in their leadership coming soon. Well, President Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about the University of Nevada, Reno. Thank you. Thanks. That's all we have time for for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at com. Please check out our site for news stories every day, thenevadaindependent.com. Thank you.